Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, the NDP with a big announcement on mental health services, a great debate on housing supply and whether the PCs can solve it. Almost four years later, the Tories still want cabinet ministers' mandate letters kept secret. Remember the $6 million man? Well, now there's a $6 billion man. And we'll check in with some of the smaller parties seeking your vote in June. It's Tuesday, April 5th, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, the New Democrats made a big announcement on Sunday afternoon, pledging a huge increase in the availability of mental health services, which, of course, we all know are significantly more in demand because of the pandemic. They are calling it, the NDP that is, universal, publicly funded mental health care. Give us some of the deets, if you would. So this is about expanding access to uh, counseling and therapy services across the province. Uh, a, a government led by Andrea Horvath would introduce a minimum of six sessions for treatment through OHIP, rising to 12 sessions for patients who need it. Uh, the Ontario NDP would introduce legislation that recognizes mental health is as important as physical health and ensures that mental health services provided by qualified healthcare professionals and community health workers are insured through OHIP, whether they are provided in a hospital or a community health centre setting. And how exactly would the NDP organise all of this? Uh, They are aiming to create a new organization called Mental Health Ontario, uh, which would coordinate services, uh, bring in province-wide mental health standards, uh, create a a basket of services, and make sure that mental health and addiction programs are delivered comprehensively across the province. Now, I pointed out a moment ago that because of the pandemic, demand is way up for mental health services. It's been a real issue over the last couple of years. Put some numbers on that. What's demand been like? You know, the the numbers here are really uh, quite sobering. Uh, there are now more than 28,000 children and youth waiting for mental health treatment, up from 12,000 in 2017. Uh, children and youth can wait up to two and a half years for mental health care. Uh, the average wait time is two months for counseling and over three months for intensive treatment. Uh, and because everything connects with everything else, uh, the NDP would create 30,000 new supportive housing units to be built over 10 years for people with uh, mental health and addiction issues. We know that one of the biggest contributors to uh, mental health problems is often just a lack of stable housing. Uh, They want to offer an 8% funding boost to the Canadian Mental Health Association. Uh, In total, they are... uh, tallying up $1.15 billion in uh, new money for the mental health sector. Well, the theory has always been if you spend more money upstream, then you won't have to spend as much downstream. So let's continue this analogy. If more money were invested in mental health treatment, what downstream savings do the NDP see? Well, we know that when we don't address mental health issues, it's not like those problems disappear, uh, never to show up again. Instead, they show up in different places. People show up in uh, ERs because of uh, 
the the various ways that people can try to deal with mental health issues on their own, sometimes through uh, drug use and addiction, other times with self-harm. Uh, sometimes uh, there are police calls, and uh, we know that those can end in tragedy and even when they don't, uh, they can be very, very costly. Uh, in total, uh, the NDP is, believes that they can uh, reasonably project $10 billion in savings over the next five years. Okay, let's stick with the NDP here because they made some other news this weekend as well. Uh, the party unveiled its election slogan. And here we go. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Ready? You're ready and so are they. <laughs> Strong, ready, working for you. That's the NDP's election slogan. And the party announced, actually, that they had raised $1.72 million in the first quarter of this year. And the party says that's more money than all the other political parties at Queen's Park combined. Pretty good number then. Uh, yeah, very good. Uh, the money came in via more than 27,000 donations, uh, meaning that the average donation was a little over $60. Uh, the NDP had been doing really well with small dollar donations uh, for a while now. Uh, you know, traditionally, the party hasn't had as much money as the uh, the Tories or the Liberals to uh, fight elections. Uh, it seems like this time uh, things are, are relatively flush for them. And it's, I, I think, going to make the coming election more interesting. Let us follow up on that news from the NDP with some housing policy, because I know how much, John Michael, you enjoy staying up until the wee small hours of the morning reading the Planning <laughs> Act. So this one's for you. The Ontario government struck a housing task force, you well remember. Uh, the idea was come up with some recommendations to get prices down and supply up. Why don't you take us through some of the ideas that were being considered? Uh, probably the, the simplest idea uh, that the task force recommended was to set the goal of getting one and a half million new homes built in the province over the next decade. Now, of course, how you do that is the more important part of the story. Uh, you know, everybody, I think, acknowledges that if you want to get uh, that many homes built in the places where we need new housing the most, that's going to require increasing density in existing neighborhoods. Uh, it was at least a few months ago when that task force came out an open question as to whether municipalities would buy into that. Uh, the task force also recommended a number of measures to speed up approvals. Um, and then there were some other measures that were uh, recommended, uh, not just uh, from you know the, the Tory side of the, the aisle, but also from, for example, the New Democrats, things like you know increasing the uh, foreign buyer's tax to 20% and making it uh, province-wide. Uh, that was actually a measure that the government uh, just announced recently. Recently, uh, unclear how much that's going to affect the the numbers, but certainly with uh, demand uh, really spreading across the province, uh, there was certainly a view that you needed to to apply that tax outside of just the GTA, which was where it was previously. Yeah, the province of Ontario did pick up that foreign buyers tax. They did move it to twenty percent as per the recommendation. However. We have to consider the politics of all of the rest of it, and many of those recommendations, well, let's just say they kind of bit the dust. There are 444 municipalities in Ontario, and a great many of them are smaller towns, which tend to lean conservative ideologically. So the question becomes, if you're a Tory provincial government looking for local re-election support, are you going to bring in a policy that most municipalities seem rather hostile to? 
to ask the question is to answer it, of course. Uh, you know, experts say one of the most important things you can do is increase the housing supply, is intensify development in existing neighborhoods uh, where it makes sense. And we're talking in the context of the city of Toronto, you know, places like the, the neighborhoods within walking distance to uh, the subway lines, right? The subway lines that, you know, mostly have existed for 50 years, but in many cases, uh, you still have neighborhoods of, of bungalows and two-story homes uh, right up against those subway stations. Uh, but of course, those are neighborhoods with homeowners and voters, uh, and the people who live there uh, don't necessarily want more density in their neighborhoods. And the local politicians, uh, and here we mean not just uh, mayors and councillors, but yes, MPPs uh, who want their votes, uh, do not want to risk their re-election uh, in either uh, June or October of this year uh, by forcing more density on them. Uh, and, you know, that is more or less the the uh, the problem that faces the the Tory government. I think they are philosophically uh, inclined to listen to many of the recommendations from the task force, but uh, they do not want to get hung on this in the coming election. So what we have now is a status quo that favors the existing politicians, the existing homeowners, and really does nothing for people who are uh, on the outside looking in if they don't already have uh, a place to call their own. So it's a bit of a sad state of affairs. Uh, you've basically suggested why nothing's going to happen on this file this year, because it does take a bit of political courage to make this happen. And less than two months before an election, um, well, what do we say? Political courage is often in short supply at that point? <laughs> uh, somebody uh, messaged me on the day that uh, the government's uh, housing bill, have we named it yet? It's the, the Bill 109, the More Homes for Everyone Act. Um, somebody messaged me the day of, and uh, they were extremely disappointed. I'll, I'll say this is a, this person is a, is a housing advocate. They were extremely disappointed. And, and all I could say is that the government is not saturated with courage <laughs> right now. Um <laughs> But, you know, it's it's frustrating because the status quo we have in Ontario manages to irritate absolutely everyone. Um, you know, we do in Toronto build a lot of new homes relative to many other North American jurisdictions. It's just that we concentrate all of that growth uh, into a handful of small pockets in the city. That makes that land incredibly expensive, generates huge demand for services like new schools and parks in areas that don't have those services. Uh, all the while, uh, more than half of the city's neighborhoods have either stagnated or actually lost population in the last few decades. Uh, huge parts of the city, what we have is a, a formula for the status quo and doing nothing. It, it is really no mystery why uh, young people looking for that first home are so frustrated right now. And let me just tease the fact that we're going to have an interview, you and I will, later in the podcast with a housing advocate who I think you've probably accurately summarized her views on this, which are less than enthralled with what uh, Bill 109 has to say. So everybody stay tuned for that. Let's now do what we often do on this podcast, and that's really get into the weeds of things in politics. Sometimes people ask me, how do cabinet ministers know what they're supposed to do, what their agenda should be? Good question. And the answer is, well, the prime minister or the premier writes them a mandate letter, and that mandate letter is sort of a to-do list. The prime minister of Canada has made public the federal government's mandate letters, for whatever reason, Premier Doug Ford has refused for nearly four years to make provincial cabinet ministers' mandate letters public. What's the latest on this? 
The latest is that after uh, the divisional court uh, in Ontario and the Ontario Court of Appeal uh, both uh, ordered the premier to reveal what is in his mandate letters. And we're still, we are talking about all the mandate letters from successive cabinet shuffles. We are still just talking about the mandate letters from the first cabinet that was sworn in in the summer of 2018. Uh, The premier is still uh, (laughs) disinclined to do so, let's say. Uh, And so he has appealed the uh, lower court decisions to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, who, uh, of course, will eventually deliver the final verdict. Uh, But I think it's fair to say here that uh, the premier and his attorney general, the government collectively, uh, are trying to, uh, I believe the saying, Steve, is rag the puck here. Uh, hey, well done. Is, well done. Good one. The, yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> hockey term, as I understand it. <laughs> um, did that hurt? I should ask you, did it did it hurt to use a sports I, I think I might have sprained something there. <laughs> Does that count as an athletic injury? <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um <laughs> By the time the Supreme Court considers this case, uh, the election will be over. Uh, If Ford is still the premier, then he will be on to a new cabinet with new mandate letters. Maybe the Supreme Court will make a decision after the election, but it's not going to influence the outcome of this election. Uh, If he loses, uh, I have no idea what will necessarily happen with that case, but we'll be on to a different government with new mandate letters. um, And, you know, the... The way government succession works in our system, it's not like the new government can suddenly decide to to publish those old mandate letters. Uh, New Democrat uh, MPP Peggy Sattler, upon hearing the news that the government was appealing this to the Supreme Court, asked the premier, you know, what have you got to hide? Uh, It's a fair question. Uh, You know, what could be in those letters that is so controversial or, uh, you know, of concern that the government wouldn't want that information to get out? Uh, I don't know. You don't know. Uh, Nobody actually knows. But I'm going to ask you, can I get a little bit nerdy for a minute? Are you asking me for permission to be yourself? (laughs) (laughs) we're we're still on the clock here so i'll I'll try and go quickly um it is still possible of course that you know the supreme court could uh actually side with the government and say that the lower courts were wrong and that it's it's proper to keep the mandate letters confidential Uh, we should note in this context that prior to kathleen Wynne, uh, every single ontario government before her had done exactly what doug ford is doing now and so if you read some of the court decisions it sure looks like the ontario government went to court saying well like every single government before the our immediate predecessors did this, we can't imagine why it's a problem with privacy legislation now. Uh, the Information and Privacy Commissioner uh, has seen the letters we are talking about, says they are not fundamentally different from the ones that Kathleen Wynne made public with her government, and therefore there can be no pressing reason to keep them confidential. What is kind of funny in this uh, case, if you read some of the the court decisions, is that it it does sound like the government just might not have done a very good job of making its arguments. They did not present uh, evidence or very strong arguments that uh, for why the mandate letters should be kept confidential. Uh, The Supreme Court as I say, it could simply uh, side with uh, the government. It could side with the lower courts. We, we don't really know what the outcome will be. Uh, but it is not a great look for the government when the courts say you have failed to present like the basic facts of your argument very well. And it does get back to that original question. If the mandate letters are essentially the same as what Kathleen Wynne, the first premier to publish mandate letters, what, what was in her mandate letters, what's the big surprise? What's the big controversy? What's everybody afraid of? 
What's what's wrong with a little sunshine? I don't know. It's, yeah, it's not like uh, this government would have been a, so foolish. I mean, one imagines it's not like they would be so foolish as to like write. Oh, and by the way, here is our ten step plan to do evil things. Like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. All right, everyone who drives a car or a truck with an internal combustion engine has surely noticed what's happened to the price of gas these days. The Tories have introduced a bill that would reduce the provincial portion of the gas tax by 5.7 cents per liter to make gas more affordable. But Mr. McGrath, I believe there's a catch. There is always a catch. Uh, This policy would not go into effect until July 1st. I guess for the government's uh, benefit, that that's at least you know the start of the, or you know into the summer driving season. But it would be nearly a month after the election, so it might not help them politically. And it would only stay in effect uh, until the end of 2022. So we're looking at a a six month gas tax holiday uh, in effect. Uh, some of this undoubtedly is to um, uh, tweak the nose of the federal government, where uh, the the federal carbon tax uh, just added 2.2 cents per liter uh, to the cost of gasoline in Ontario because uh, the tax increased uh, as of April 1st. This is where I put my old timers hat on and say, you know. I'd like to remind everybody that back in 1990, the Ontario Liberals announced a one percentage point cut on the retail sales tax, which they thought would be very popular. But instead, the opposition parties portrayed it as the government trying to buy people's votes with their own money, and it backfired big time. And of course, David Peterson, the then Liberal Premier, went on to lose that next election to Bob Ray. Obviously, too soon to see how people react to this, but we should just keep in mind, uh, these tax cuts are not necessarily a slam dunk with the electorate. No, and, you know, it's understandable that the Tories are uh, trying to uh, make life more affordable for Ontarians, or at least trying to be seen to be uh, making life more affordable for Ontarians. Uh, You know, governments all across North America, regardless of partisan stripe uh, are dealing with the same uh, high oil prices, high gas prices, and are trying to figure out how to uh, cushion that somewhat for voters. Um, You know, but we should also point out that with the uh, previously announced license plate renewal uh, stickers being uh, cancelled, or at least the fees no longer applying, uh, and now the lowering of the gas tax, these are not decisions that come without a cost. Uh, That's substantially more than a billion dollars of revenue that will not be coming to the Treasury. Uh, Ontario, of course, is running a deficit and uh, will continue running a deficit for a few more years at least. Uh, But this uh, now missing revenue uh, is going to require the government either to, you know, raise taxes down the road, uh, borrow money to pay for these programs, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, potentially cut other programs to pay for these promises. Uh, You know, maybe less of uh, an issue with this relatively brief gas tax holiday, but uh, that billion dollars from uh, license plate fees that's that's just you know, a, a billion dollars is real money as they say and that's that money is just gone uh, so you know the, there is no free lunch all right i'm going to do a little pop quiz with you here and don't sweat it this is not going to be all that hard <laughs> here we go <laughs> Um, I didn't study. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure you don't need to have studied in order to ace this quiz. Can you tell me, with the current incarnation of the Ontario legislature, which parties are represented by MPPs in the House right now? Uh, Well, you've got the progressive conservatives with, of course, a majority of seats. Uh, Then uh, the New Democrats uh, with the second most sitting as the uh, official opposition. Uh, The liberals uh, are not an official party, as we... um, 
maybe perhaps remind them too often for their comfort. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the Greens have uh, one seat with party leader Mike Schreiner. Four out of four. I knew you wouldn't disappoint me, John <laughs> Michael. But you do know that there's actually another party in there, right? Like an officially registered party with Elections Ontario. They didn't get elected under that banner, but they're there, right? Uh, that's right. Uh, the new Blue Party has one MPP, uh, Belinda Karahalios. Uh, she was elected as a progressive conservative, but uh, left the caucus. Uh, gosh, was that only last year? It feels like... It's been a long four years, man. <laughs> um, but uh, Belinda Karahalios uh, left the uh, Progressive Conservative Party, has started a new one along with her husband, Jim uh, Karahalios. Uh, he, of course, was uh, a thorn in the side of uh, the PC party, both under Patrick Brown and Doug Ford. Uh, they have started this new party they are calling the New Blue Party. And I can see people listening to this right now saying, why are they talking about all this? Well, here's the reason why. We bring this up because it is incredibly difficult to get a new party off the ground in Ontario. If you look at other provinces or the federal political scene for that matter, we have had new parties come on stream all the time. I mean, just look at Quebec right next door. The current government is a party that didn't exist 10 years ago. The CAC, Coalition à l'Avenir du Québec. They also have Quebec Solidaire, which has seats in the legislature in the National Assembly, I should say, going back a couple of elections. And, of course, the Bloc Québécois, uh, federally, uh, has been around for 30 years. And the Parti Québécois has been around since the middle 70s. There's the Saskatchewan Party out west, the United Conservative Party in Alberta. Federally, we've had Reform, the Canadian Alliance, the Conservative Party, the Greens. I mentioned the Bloc Québécois. But in Ontario, for the last 60 years... We've had only three parties, Tories, Liberals, New Democrats, and then for the first time in 2018, one Green MPP in Mike Schreiner. Pretty status quo here for the longest time. There are other parties in Ontario that have sought the, your vote, and uh, they run candidates in a handful of ridings. But, you know, the new Blue Party says it's got 118 candidates uh, named and nominated already, and it's confident it will have candidates in all 124 ridings by June 2nd. That, you know, is a, a substantial achievement for a party that's running a slate for the first time. Uh, and you never know, they could win a seat, given that Cara Halios is already an MPP and incumbency never hurts in politics. Uh, there is also the Ontario First Party and the Ontario Party, which are also new offerings. Uh, former MP and Conservative leadership contender Derek Sloan will run in Hastings, Lennox, and Addington for the Ontario Party, uh, and that is going to be an open seat because the Tory MPP uh, is not seeking re-election. So, you know, it could be a surprise on election day. You, you just never know. That is true. You never know. Let us, uh, where do we want to go here? Let's, let's stick with nominated candidates for a second here, because it's highly unusual for sitting MPPs to be challenged for their nominations by someone from within their own party. That rarely happens, but it's happening right now with the New Democrats in the city of Brampton. What's the story there? Since 2018, Kevin Yard has been the MPP in the riding of Brampton North. Uh, you know, the, the NDP had uh, a lot of success in 905 ridings that they had actually you know, spent several election cycles targeting. Yard was one of the beneficiaries uh, of, of that cycle. Uh, but he is now being challenged for the nomination by a former Kaladin Council candidate, uh, Sandeep Singh. Uh, Yard is confident he will prevail and be the NDP's candidate after the nomination meeting on April 7th. But, you know, we are bringing this to people's attention because normally someone from the party would just take a challenger aside and say, 
hey, this guy's a sitting MPP, you will have your chance, but you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's not cool to challenge a sitting MPP. Uh, maybe that happened this time, maybe it didn't, we don't know, but uh, clearly uh, Mr. Singh, uh, if he got that message, he decided to ignore it. <laughs> Let's focus for a second on a second NDP held riding. They're holding it at least over the last three and plus years. This is the riding in downtown Toronto of University Rosedale. And there was a highly unusual development earlier this week there. The deputy leader of the Green Party, that's Diane Sachs, has unveiled four rather high-profile endorsements. And get this, some of the endorsements are from very high-profile people in other parties. Take us through it. Uh, well, so for starters, you have uh, Barbara Hall, uh, the former mayor of Toronto, the last mayor of the uh, pre-amalgamation city of Toronto, uh, Hugh Siegel, the chief of staff to uh, Premier Bill Davis and Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, uh, a, a uh, long-standing conservative name, uh, Tom Axworthy, who was uh, principal secretary to Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, uh, and Julian Heller, a three-time Ontario NDP candidate in the riding of Toronto St. Paul's. I wanted to put this in the podcast this week, JMM, because um, I, I find some of this rather extraordinary. In some respects, it's not a surprise that Barbara Hall's name would be on that list. She was a uh, you know pro-environment, very green mayor of Toronto back in the day. Hugh Siegel, well, the Tories are not expected to win that seat <laughs> of University Rosedale. And um, he actually endorsed Annamie Paul, the federal green leader, when she ran in a by-election in Toronto Centre. So not a complete shock that Hugh Siegel would be endorsing another ca green candidate that he likes. But Tom Axworthy, he is a liberal, and the liberals very much have their eye on taking this seat back. And Julian Heller is a three-time NDP candidate, and the NDP currently hold this seat. So it is quite a thing for him to have done this endorsement of the Green deputy leader. I can't imagine that Jessica Bell, who's the MPP there right now, or the New Democratic Party in general, are too happy about that. Uh, no, I, I'm certain you're right. I, I mean, somebody like Hugh Siegel, I think, is you could fairly call a, a heterodox conservative uh, at this point. But, uh, you know, it's a sign of how much respect there is out there, uh, really across the political spectrum uh, for Diane Sachs. Uh, she has now entered uh, partisan politics. But before that, she was uh, Ontario's uh, environmental commissioner, the, the last uh, person to hold that post as an independent office. So, uh, you know, uh, really a ton of respect for her and uh, clearly some people willing to um, breach party walls to say nice things for her. <laughs> and here's another little piece of trivia. We know there are a lot of second generation MPPs in the current Ontario legislature. If Diane Sachs were to win, she too would be a second generation MPP. Do you remember who her parent was who served oh, as gosh. a Queen's Park MPP? How long ago? This was the 1960s. So we're going back more than 50 years. I think you and I discussed this on a previous episode and I've forgotten. Morton Shulman was his name. Morton right, Shulman, right, right, right. who used to have a show on City TV called The Shulman File. And um, he was a New Democrat MPP who was the bane of John Robarts's existence in the <laughs> 1960s. He was a real gadfly in the House, uh, but uh, was a great opposition MPP. Anyway, that's what Diane Sachs is aiming for as we count down towards the June 2nd election. Now, let's look at the Tories. Last week, we told you that former Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders would run for the PCs in the riding of Don Valley West. This week, the Tories strike again with another high-profile candidate. 
Uh, this one has some name recognition. Uh, it is the Premier's nephew, Michael Ford. Uh, he's currently a uh, Toronto City Councillor. Uh, he represents the former ward of uh, both the, the, the Premier and his late brother used to hold. Uh, he is going to run for the Progressive Conservatives, though, in York Southwest in a slightly uh, uh, different uh, part of the city, though nearby. Uh, you know, the Ford name is is well known in the city, obviously, and and in that region of the city, it's it uh, is likely to carry him some distance. But it's going to be a very tough seat uh, for Ford to win. This is a seat uh, that has gone back and forth between uh, the New Democrats and the Liberals, but the Progressive Conservatives uh, have never won it. That is true. Um, however, the PC candidate lost last time by only a little more than 1,100 votes. So it could be a very interesting three-way fight there this time with the Ford brand uh, being injected into the race. Uh, one more note on nominations we should add. Yesterday, the Liberals announced that Lee Fairclough, who is the CEO of St. Mary's Hospital in Kitchener-Waterloo, she's going to be the party's candidate in Etobicoke Lakeshore. She actually, uh, despite working in the Kitchener-Waterloo area, uh, she's lived in Etobicoke for more than two decades. Uh, and... Um, I think, well, let, let, let's put a little flesh on the bone here. That is an unusual appointment um, for the Liberals to make. I shouldn't even say appointment because I'm not sure she's being appointed. She's actually going to run for the nomination later this week. But um, this is a big move for the Liberals, I'd say. It's it's very unusual to see a, a, a hospital CEO run. This is a... Uh Let's, how to put this. this is a part of the province's uh, uh, political economy that uh, where it's very common for people to uh, not want to upset the government in power. And so hospital CEOs don't want to uh, anger uh, sitting governments, don't want to give a sense of, of being partisan actors. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ms. Fairclaw has said, you know, some pretty tough things about uh, the Ford government's response to the pandemic, saying that, you know, uh, the, the government isn't up to the task or not up to the task. Uh, you know, it does make you wonder, uh, given that there have frankly already been accusations about whether the Ford government has, has put uh, political pressure on some hospitals in the GTA, it, it, you have to ask the question uh, whether a hospital would face retribution uh, if not only if Fairclaw doesn't win the seat, but if the, the liberals don't form the next government. Let me tell you a little story here. And I'm going to go way back for this one, because anybody who thinks that um, the, the most recent developments of the current government putting pressure on a hospital CEO or hospital officials to do things in their interest at the expense of the opposition is new. Let me tell you, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to take you back to, I think it was the 1970s, and the Bill Davis government was in power. And there was a liberal leader, Stuart Smith, wanted to do an event, I think at Baycrest, in the west end of the city of Toronto. And... Just, I think it was the day before the announcement was to be made, the head of Baycrest came to Stuart Smith, the liberal leader at the time, and he said, I'm sorry, we're going to have to cancel your event. Well, why is that? This is an important part of my campaign. This was a big part of my health platform that I wanted to unveil here at your hospital. Why do I have to cancel? Because I got a call from the Progressive Conservative Party saying that if I ever wanted another nickel for my hospital, I couldn't let you come in here. So there's nothing new about putting pressure on hospital CEOs all over the place, which adds to, I would suggest, uh, the guts with, with, with which Ms. Fairclough is coming forward to run, because you just never know what the ramifications can be. Uh, no, and it's, uh, it, it will bear watching in uh, months and years to come. <laughs> yeah.
Okay, let me take you back, JMM, four years to the previous election campaign. Do you remember what then-candidate Doug Ford called the head of Hydro One? I uh, sure do. Uh, then PC leader Ford uh, tried to embarrass him over his uh, salary and the uh, generous compensation generally. I, th- I believe he dubbed him the $6 million man. <laughs> and do you know what that was a reference to? Uh, it's, uh, I believe, a reference to a TV show uh, starring Lee Majors. It aired uh, before I was born, though I did watch it in reruns <laughs> once upon a time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, friends, once again, he reminds everyone that I'm 20 years older than he is. Well done. Yes. Well, yeah, the $6 million man was named Steve Austin. Uh, in the show. And the liberals have decided to evoke that show again by labeling Doug Ford this time as the six billion dollar man. That's billion with a B. Okay, what's that all about? This is the uh, liberals. Uh, I, I enjoy this. It's a liberals cute way of reminding people that the premier uh, appears to have made six billion dollars worth of promises uh, this month in the lead up to the June 2nd election. Uh, I believe that number uh, predates the uh, proposed gas tax cut. But, uh, you know, they've put a list together. So let's go through this. Uh, the, the We've already mentioned the billion dollars uh, in lost revenue from uh, canceling the license plate sticker renewal program, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies going to uh, the auto sector for uh, retooling the Honda plant in Alliston and uh, a, a EV battery plant in Windsor. Uh, also, uh, on Monday, the government uh, announced uh, more uh, hundreds of millions of dollars for the uh, GM plants uh, in Oshawa and in one other part of Ontario whose name eludes me right at the moment. Uh, then there is the federal uh, provincial child care program, which is uh, going to cost a few pretty pennies along the way as well. Uh, you get our point here that really, really substantial sums of money are going out the door. Uh, lots of uh, happy headlines for the government uh, just in advance of an election, of course. Lots of billions and billions of bionic promises going out the door there. (laughs) Okay, one last item. With the election less than two months away, we are going to be inundated by polling over the next many days and weeks, to be sure. Here is some of the latest from Angus Reid. It's got the Tories at 37%, the NDP at 29%, the Liberals at 25%. That has the PCs within spitting distance of a majority government, but probably still not there. But as I like to remind everybody... Polls tell us what people thought yesterday. They don't tell us what people are going to think on June the 2nd. Right. And, you know, there's some concerning news there uh, in the the details of the Angus Reid polling. Uh, 53%, uh, a majority, obviously, of people uh, thought the government did a poor job on handling the pandemic. Uh, 70% thought they did a subpar job on health care. Uh, 86% thought they'd failed on housing affordability. Uh, it's rare that you see a number that large in a poll like this. Uh, how much of those turn out to be decisive issues? We will obviously uh, wait and see as the campaign develops. But boy, that house number in particular, that would be like a siren going off in my office if I were uh, in electoral politics. Well, let's stick with housing because we teased earlier in the podcast that we would have an interview coming up and here it comes. We're going to talk a bit more about the government's big housing bill announced last week. Ontario's municipal leaders were pretty happy about the government backing off of major changes in planning rules, but clearly not everybody was happy. Uh, One of the groups uh, most critical about the government's uh, Bill 109 uh, was More Neighbors Toronto, one of the city's more prominent YIMBY, or Yes in My Backyard, groups. Uh, So we spoke with one of their members. Here's our interview with Elena Parkinson from More Neighbors Toronto. Elena, before we get into your reaction to Bill 109, 
Just tell us a bit about your organization, More Neighbors Toronto. What do you do? Yeah, so More Neighbors Toronto is really a group of pro-housing advocates in the GTA and across Ontario, really. And, you know, we're voices from across the political spectrum. So we're not a partisan organization. We're an organization that believes we need to take action to solve our housing crisis and putting forth ideas on how to do that. Uh, More Neighbours Toronto actually made a submission to the Housing Affordability Task Force, uh, the report that was published earlier this year. Uh, What was More Neighbours asking for? You know, to be honest, I think we're asking for a number of things. We're asking for zoning reform. That's something that's really important to us. So, you know, if we look at residential land use in most of our cities, 60 to 70 percent of our land is zoned for single family housing only. That means that all of our development is forced into a small amount of land. And, you know, if we look at census data, we can actually see these patterns where even though our population is growing, around half of neighborhoods in Toronto have actually lost population since 1970. So the effect of this is really visible. We see condo towers going up, but in other neighborhoods, the population is stagnant or declining. We don't think that makes sense. We don't think that that's a good use of the land that we have in Toronto. And it really limits the amount of housing that we can build. Um, I think other things that we would ask for are increased investments in affordable or public housing, Um, you know, as well as looking at just simply making it easier to build. So there's a lot of things that could be done around building codes, you know, looking at mass timber or allowing single stair buildings up to a certain height. So those are three things you wanted from the provincial government. You saw what their response was to the housing task force's uh, recommendations. How content or not are you? I would say that the prevailing emotion at More Neighbors is disappointment. You know, there are some good things in Bill 109. Certainly speeding up housing approvals is a good step and a necessary step. And again, I had mentioned changes to the building code. So there were some you know, promising things in Bill 109 that they're going to look at that. But you know, it, it just really didn't go far enough for us. And we feel at More Neighbors and myself personally that you know, the housing crisis has been years in the making. And it's not the time to take timid action. It's the time to take bold action and immediate action. So you already spoke a bit about what the um, uh, requests that More Neighbours Toronto had for the the task force, but I wonder if you could go into a, a, a bit more detail. You know, what would you have liked to see instead in Bill 109 instead of the, 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 the timid action, as you call it? So I think one thing that we really would have liked to see is province-wide standards and requirements for municipalities around land use, around, you know, zoning rules. So, you know, as an example, even in some parts of Toronto where technically multi-unit housing might be permitted, if you want to build a triplex, there's actually a greater setback requirement for building a triplex than building a single family home. So one of the things we would really like to see is for the province to implement minimum standards around zoning, you know, to implement targets for municipalities in terms of housing approvals you know, setting, setting those standards so that municipalities are forced to build housing to account for growth. 
Well, you've just put your finger on one of the bigger problems here, and we heard the Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark say it when he unveiled the bill, and that is municipal leaders, quote unquote, aren't there yet in terms of doing the things that you just said, and he's not prepared less than two months before an election to force them into doing that kind of thing. Do you have some sympathy for his position? Not really, to be honest. (laughs) I, I mean, I can understand where he's coming from, and I think, you know, politicians' priority immediately before an election is getting re-elected. But I would also say that we know that the Ford government doesn't have a problem with taking sudden action and imposing it on municipalities during an election year. You know, in Toronto, we have seen that back in 2018. Um, And, you know, I would also say our municipal leaders have had years to take action on the housing crisis, and they haven't done so yet. So I would really ask them, what are you going to do differently now? You know, why, why, should, why should we trust you, given a little bit more time from the province to solve this problem? So maybe one of the the toughest part of the politics in all this is that uh, it's it's the voters who uh, you know they vote for both MPPs uh, as well as mayors and councillors and and Reeves and wardens and uh, those voters are, many of them are homeowners who don't want to see their neighborhoods change and I'm wondering what you would say to them to make the case for change right now. Yeah, so you know I would say that change is inevitable. And I would ask those homeowners to really consider, you know, do you want your neighborhood to change because you're keeping people out? Or do you want your neighborhood to change by inviting more neighbors to live in your neighborhood? And with the status quo, especially in Toronto, you know, we see these neighborhoods with declining populations, undersubscribed schools in the heart of downtown Toronto. I don't think that that is beneficial to our neighborhoods and to our city in the long run. You mentioned uh, provincial standards for uh, zoning rules, and and I I have to tell people just because I I get a kick out of it. I mean, this stuff can be really detailed and really uh, technical, and a lot of people don't don't necessarily get um, how it can get in the way of new homes. Uh, But the thing I I like to tell people is, you know, I live in a you know a relatively modest semi-detached home in East York, a stone's throw from a subway stop, uh, and under the current rules of the City of Toronto, this house could not be built again today. And, you know, it, it's one thing to say, well, uh, you know, we, we need to have planning rules that, that prevent people from slapping up a 40-story tower uh, in the middle of a neighborhood. Uh, but at the moment, uh, you can't build my two-story home <laughs> in, on lots of streets in Toronto. Um, and, and, you know, and I'm just wondering, I mean, is, is that uh, something you have uh, had, had, you know, I, I have seen that message from housing advocates. Is that something uh, you have seen, uh, you know, resonate with people at all? Um, I mean, I think it depends on the person. I think people who are, you know, interested in the details of municipality, absolutely that resonates with people. And, you know, even when I'm, I'm talking to people who are maybe a little bit reluctant about a new development, you know, I try to say, look, I I live in an apartment tower that was constructed in the 1960s. I think it's a great place to live. You know, in Dufferin Grove, it's a really nice neighborhood, walkable to the subway. But again, you know, my tower would not be permitted under today's zoning. And so, you know, I think with the really restrictive zoning, it's, it's hard for people to, you know, make that conceptual leap from, hey, I like my neighborhood the way it is, and I want to see my neighborhood continue to be a wonderful place to live to all of the details. And so, you know, I really 
try to tell people the story, right? You know, as you're saying, so much housing in Toronto wouldn't be able to be built today. And the impact of that is really, we don't have enough housing. And, you know, young professionals, young families are leaving the city. You know, I have friends who also live out in East York. And just to be able to rent a house, they had to pay an entire year's rent up front. That, that's just how competitive it is, even as a renter, to find a place to live. That just obviously disqualifies so many people from being able to live in the city if those are some of the conditions you have to deal with. Elena, it's really good of you to spare some time with us on the On Poly podcast today. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. Elena Parkinson from More Neighbors Toronto. We thank her for joining us on the podcast. Okay, everybody, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. We also want to remind you, you can read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly dash newsletter. And given the significance of housing this week and the developments that either did or didn't take place, that's what this week's newsletter focuses on, the decisions around housing policy and Bill 109. All right, now, here's my quote of the week. We're going to go back to last Thursday and give some attention to the Green Party of Ontario, which revealed its electric vehicle supply chain policy. This is to encourage more mining and manufacturing of EVs and EV batteries in the province of Ontario. The Greens would offer up to $10,000 incentives to buy EV cars and up to $1,000 for an e-bike and double the province's electricity supply uh, by building more renewable energy sources. Um, Here's Green Leader Mike Schreiner and Deputy Leader Diane Sachs on all of that. We can lead the world in manufacturing electric cars, electric bikes, and electric transit vehicles. But it's going to take a real plan for real action, not the half measures from the three legacy parties. Right now, Ontario is lagging behind. We need to do better. The economy and climate depend on it. For a real, flexible, made in Ontario supply chain, Everything we need is in our roadmap to net zero. We can make our air cleaner. We can improve jobs here. We can make the quality of life better, but not with the Ford plan. Mike Schreiner and Diane Sachs on the need to move much more quickly to an EV-focused automobile, truck, and bicycle sector. And my quote of the week comes from Andrea Horvath on Sunday. Uh, She was speaking in Toronto as part of her party's uh, mental health platform launch. Uh, And uh, the provincial NDP leader referred to some recent federal activity in an attempt to get voters to pay, uh, let's say, closer attention uh, to the party she leads. But friends, just over a week ago, our friend Jagmeet Singh broke through the cynicism. He broke through the cynicism and the noise. By using their power, the NDP secured real results that will make a difference, a big difference, in the lives of Canadians. They gave us a glimpse of what a government that's on your side can actually look like. The kind of government that we will be. That's NDP leader Andrew Horvath speaking in Toronto on Sunday. And I know she said during the course of that event that she didn't think she danced as well as Jugmeet Singh, but um, I don't know. I thought she was boogieing pretty good up there on stage in front of all those people. You know, it was a, a fun little festive atmosphere they had going on there. <laughs> 
Yes, indeed. All right. That is this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. 